welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Well, now we come now to the Word of God this morning, and uh, in Luke, we come now to the denial of Christ by Peter, the lowest moment of uh, this beloved disciple. Much to see and to learn. Here's Luke's description of it, one of the four of the Gospel writers that chronicle this very important event. Let us hear the Word of God. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is God's open and revealing word. May we see all that he has for our walk with the Lord Jesus through it. Amen. You can be seated. Well, you know, I've never met a Christian who dislikes or looks down on the Apostle Peter. You know why? It's because of all of his beloved failures, isn't it? Isn't that how you feel about him? I mean, you're sad for him, but you're so glad he's in the Bible. Because every Christian can say, you know, I'm pretty sure Peter's already been where I know I might end up. (laughs) Sooner or later, in a moment of spiritual failure. And spiritual failure is what this encounter is all about. He had so many, and uh, we love him for it. And we love him for his comeback stories. Isn't he one of the greatest comeback stories in the Bible? In fact, when people talk to me about Peter, I always bring up the thing I admire about him the most. It's not the the intellect and the depth of his theology and his epistles. It's not his courage in the moment. It's not the great spiritual insights he gave voice to. It's not his leadership of the early church. It's one thing that I love about Peter. When he fell or failed, he always looked back to Jesus. 
This, that was his greatest strength. When he fell, when he failed, he always came back to Jesus. It was a short look from Peter's failure to the master. And I have actually modeled that in my own life. He's one of my favorite apostles. Well, today we study Peter's greatest spiritual failure, and it's a long list, right? And that is his denial of Christ. And really I've titled the message what what really Luke describes here as the facts of spiritual failure. If you read this this passage, Luke's version particularly is, is basic and factual. There's not a lot of drama, even though it was dramatic. It, it's as though Luke almost doesn't want to go into a lot of the ugly details of how Peter failed. He keeps it factual, maybe like a doctor looking at a very sad medical case and in order to distance himself, himself from how sad it really is for the patient. He goes into doctor speak and he simply talks about the facts. And that's how it reads and that's how I studied it. And I discovered really the facts of spiritual failure. All four gospel writers record this event in detail. The Spirit wants it here because this is a temptation and a liability for all Christ followers. We will be in a position where we will be tempted to deny Christ or where we may even fall into the sinkhole of denying him. And we need to know the facts about that. So what are the facts of spiritual failure that you see in the life of Peter? I've built it around three key words. The first is renunciation. He did renounce Jesus. Let's just be honest about how deep his failure was. Secondly, he did experience the realization. He was struck to the heart over the depths of how severe his fall was. But then, not written so much here, but filled in by the other gospel writers, there is the word of restoration that Jesus brought to Peter on not just one, but three separate moments of restoration. And so in the end, a tragic story takes a beautiful upturn. And oh, I've seen this happen in my life as I've stumbled with my Savior. And I've seen, him, seen it happen in so many other lives of believers. Failure is not final for the Christian. And God has a heart of restoration for his beloved. Now you might be sitting here looking at Peter's story and I challenge you not to find a taste of it in your own life if you're an experienced Christian. Now, Peter severely fell and he deeply denied knowing Jesus. This was serious stuff. But you look at it and some might be tempted to say, well, I've never openly denied Jesus that deeply. But don't rejoice too much in your spiritual victory because all of us in some way or another, if we've got some history of walking with God And being in the world, all of us in some dimension have denied him, even outright like Peter did in a moment of fear. Or you can also deny him by silence. How about that? Maybe that's in your resume multiple times in workplace settings or social settings or family conflicts or whatever. Or maybe you've denied him by being faithless in your walk and and not living an obedient Christian life, being a living contradiction. Your message is broken by your lifestyle. 
If you haven't been in one of those categories and you're an experienced Christian, I'd like you to come down and introduce yourself to me after the service. Because I've always wanted to meet a a living miracle. Am I right here? All of us can find some place of identification in the story I'm about to tell you. Or maybe that's where you are right now and you're stranded. Oh, listen closely. There's a way out and to look to Jesus for you. So this clear, this factual description of Luke, I broke it down into the three stages, if you will, or in the passages, it breaks itself out. And many preachers over the centuries have seen the same thing. So I'll build it around three key words. The first is the fact that there was a renunciation of Jesus that Peter was guilty of. And that's the majority of the passage from verses 54 through 60. And we'll spend the majority of our time there. Now, when I use the word renunciation, that's a strong word. And I use it intentionally because that's what ended up happening. He, he, he begins a, a verbal denial. He's, he's approached again. He escalates it. And finally, he makes no mistake about how distant he wants to be from Jesus Christ. The dangers of knowing Jesus. Renunciation is defined as the fact of saying that you no longer support or have a connection with someone or something. And that's true here in all of its ugly glory. That's a long and steep and sudden descent from where Peter said he would always be. Go back in chapter 22 to verse 33. And Peter said to Jesus, after Jesus warned him that Satan was about to sift him like wheat, sift all the disciples, shake their worlds, shatter their worlds, and and put them through temptation and trauma and fear. And, 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 And Satan would particularly target Peter, Jesus said. And Peter comes back against that spiritual warning from the one who had never been wrong in his life. I'm talking about Jesus. Every warning Jesus ever made to Peter came true. And every fact Jesus ever said about the spiritual realm was accurate. In the face of that, Peter says in verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. That's the pinnacle of of Peter's confidence. And that's the way he wanted to see himself as a spiritual hero. And Jesus in the next verse makes a prophecy. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And it went right past the running lights of Peter. We know there is no response. What a descent. Now let me give you some understandings of the setting that led Peter to this renunciation of Jesus Christ. Gethsemane's betrayal and the kiss of Judas had happened just moments before Luke's description. The soldiers and the guards had surrounded Christ. Christ had declared to them that he was indeed who they were seeking, and he told them to let the disciples go. It's very important, and it's going to come back in our narrative here. He told them to let the disciples go, and the disciples (laughs) went, right? They all fled. Luke tells us here that Jesus was seized. It's a a word that was used in the Greek-Roman culture to describe primarily one thing, arrest. So they, they arrested him. He was hooked up. The authorities took him. The the Roman cohort surrounded him. 
And the entire uh, armed group moved out of Gethsemane, back up through the vineyards, through the winding streets of East Jerusalem, and all the way to the high priest's house. And there, that night, and this was now the early morning, it was after midnight, but through the balance of the morning until dawn, and they stood before Pilate, began the first of what what are six bankrupt trials that Jesus went through, hearings or trials. He went through six of them. He went through one with Annas, who was the former high priest, and that was done to see if they could come up with some immediate things they could detecting what Jesus had said or done that they could use to kind of fill out a a bill of an arraignment. It's been called that. That hearing was sort of like a mini grand jury. That didn't succeed. And Annas sent Jesus across the courtyard of the same building to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who was the formal high priest. I'll get into that in just a second. For a second trial in which they tried to do the same thing, trap Jesus in his words and perhaps in the words of false witnesses. That was mildly successful. Finally, they gathered the Sanhedrin, the 70-member ruling group of Jerusalem, after daybreak so that they could satisfy the, the, the Jewish law of not trying somebody at night, even though they broke it twice. And they brought Jesus for a trial before the Sanhedrin, so that was number three. Then when they were satisfied, they had enough verbiage and enough declarations of the Christ to go to Pilate, they went to Pilate because they wanted the death penalty and no Jewish court could bring a death penalty. And so they took him to the Roman governor, Pilate. And Pilate could see after his initial hearings that he was standing before an innocent man and in nervousness and in fear, he dumped the case off to Herod. And so Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Pilate the first time, then Herod, who in his emptiness, did not much with Jesus except inquire of him and mock him and sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate, realizing he was now stuck with a case that he didn't want, gave in to the pressure of the Jews and condemned an innocent man to death. So there were six trials that occurred through the early morning hours until Jesus was led away in crucifixion. This is the beginning of those. The first two took place in the high priest's house Verse 54, both Annas and his son lived in the same house. Most uh, most authorities that have looked at the scriptural evidence and the archaeology that we have believe that Annas and Caiaphas lived in different wings of the same grand house there in Jerusalem, bought with all their illegal profits from the temple. And that house had a wing for Annas and his his wife, and then a wing for Caiaphas. It wasn't unusual for this structure to be uh, built at all. And there was a, a big common courtyard between the two. The top floors were open to the courtyard, so it's very possible that the, the trial of Jesus before Annas and Caiaphas was, was somewhat open. If you were in the courtyard down below, you could glance up and see people standing in in the hearing room of Annas or Caiaphas, either side. And you could see what was going on, and the pillars were open, and you could hear what was going on. So the accusations could be heard in the courtyard. And perhaps Jesus standing there in the open could be seen. Many people believe that's exactly what happened, and that's why Jesus was able to turn and look down at Peter. Not many feet away from him. And so this is the environment in which all of this occurred. And the trials had started 
And now we see Peter introduced. It says, Jesus was brought into the high priest's house and the trial before Annas had started perhaps and Peter was following at a distance. Now this is, this is a surprise. Hadn't all the disciples fled? Hadn't Jesus allowed them to? Yes, nine of them ran. But it turns out through the other gospel records that we see that two came back, two turned back as they saw the army receding and the threat perhaps receding and the other disciples running the other way through the, the trees of the garden up perhaps the Mount of Olives for further safety. These two, it seemed, turned around and followed at a distance. They followed the cohort back up into the city and they followed the guards back to the house of Annas and Caiaphas. And they watched as Jesus was led through the gate and taken into custody. When they saw that, John, it tells us, knew the family of the high priest. And so he went to the gate and he asked to be admitted. And since the family of the high priest, Caiaphas or Annas, we don't know which, knew him, he was allowed in. John was wealthy and part of an influential family, the scriptures tell us. And so he got in. Peter was left outside, but the scriptures also tell us that John spoke to the girl keeping the gate there to allow Peter to come in and to be allowed into the courtyard. Some experts believe that John went all the way into the hearing room and stood there and watched as Jesus was accused. That's why we have the eyewitness testimony in the gospels of what he was accused of and the false witnesses that came in the hearings of Jesus. Peter stayed down in the courtyard. So John upstairs, perhaps in the looking over the back shoulders of the priests and the leaders in this hearing of Jesus, Peter down below. Now Peter is part of this gathering of guards that are off duty, servants that are moving in and around the palace and the gatekeeper herself who was waiting for others to come to the gate. Into that midst, the, verse, the Bible tells us in verse 55 that it was a cold night in that spring, in the, in, in, the, in the early spring of Israel, and that was often the case. It got cold, and it was an open-air atrium out into, the, out into the, the open, in that open courtyard. And so they built a fire. The Greek says they, came, they kindled a roaring fire in the middle of the courtyard in a, in a fire enclosure there and sat down together. And Peter sat down among them. It's really pretty remarkable when you think about it. Peter sitting among the very people that had just shackled his Savior. It's an image of Peter sitting in the midst of fallen humanity. It's an image of the believer in the midst of darkness. The fire roars and he is there. Now why is Peter there? Bible students have asked for centuries what possessed Peter to do this. And we don't know. We can't know. It was all a set of his decisions. The scripture's silent. But we do know that Matthew says in his version in Matthew 26, 58, that Peter went and sat in the courtyard to see the end. We don't know what that means. It could be that Peter knew that Jesus had said that he was the Messiah. And uh, that even in this dark hour being shackled and tried, Jesus would in masterful power, either with a word from his mouth of great power and fire, destroy his enemies and take control, or through the magic of his words, 
confound his enemies. And, and he would soon be walking down the steps and saying, Peter, this is a done deal. I'm free now. Let's go. It's possible. Peter was looking for that kind of triumph and he wanted to see it to the end. It's also possible that, that Peter didn't know what was going to happen, but he couldn't quite tell him, tear himself away from Jesus. That's one of the things I love about the man. He loved Jesus faultily, but he sure loved him faithfully. So we don't know why he was there. Maybe this was as close as his love could get him. And he didn't know what was going to happen. Some have even suggested that Peter was there to try and prove Jesus' prophecy wrong, that no, no rooster would crow over him, that if he had to, he'd stand for Jesus and die for Jesus. Maybe he was there to try and prove that. I kind of doubt that one. But you know what? For whatever reason he was there, I can tell you something we do know. He was in way over his head, wasn't he? Because the, the scripture then moves quickly forward and in, in three verses or four verses he denies Jesus in the space of a little over an hour. Let's look at it. They're sitting there at the fire and it roars up in full bloom and, and then in verse 56 it says then, so it didn't take long, a servant girl, Mark I think tells us it's the same girl that had opened the gate, opened the door, Seeing him as he sat in the light, the Greek word there is phos, which strong light, the light of the fire surged up and Peter made a mistake and leaned in too close and his face was in full view. All the detail, the fire lit him up and, 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 and she looked right at him and, and she sat and, and looked at him, seeing him as he sat in the light. And she looked closely at him. The Greek word is intense, antenizo. It, it meant she strained and fixed her gaze on him. She stared at him for a, for a few moments. And then she said, this man also was with him. Now notice she didn't talk to Peter. She says to everybody in the circle, who's in the circle? Uh, guards, servants, officials of, of, of the high priest, the same people that had arrested Jesus. She turns to them all. It says, this man was with him also. So that's a, a pretty big development. And Peter is caught totally off guard. She accused him to all in this sudden moment. And Peter jumps out of his skin and he jumps clear out of his courage. And believe me, for Peter, that wasn't a long trip. It just would, and neither would it have been for me. So he wasn't expecting this in the least. Peter had maybe steeled himself to face a moment in a trial room where he could compose his words or where he had rights, where there was procedure. He never thought that a servant girl would look at his face intently across a fire and then point to guards surrounding him. This too, this man was with him. He completely was blindsided and he immediately denies it and it said, he says, but he denied it, verse 57, no space between those two verses in time, saying, woman, I do not know him. Woman was basically, ma'am, I, I don't know him. He was trying to hold it together. He denied him, the Bible says, our naomai in the Greek literally means to say no. No, no way, no You've got it wrong. In no way do I know him. 
Of course, it's the exact opposite of confessing him, isn't it? And many Bible teachers have said, isn't it ironic, that in, in the courtroom just above where Peter could see and even hear him, Jesus was standing and confessing, or about to, that he was the Christ. And Peter was busy denying. The human irony in the story is profound. You see, Peter was unprepared for all this. That was really one of the biggest problems in all of it. He had steeled himself maybe for an interrogation. He didn't know what he was walking into. And maybe that's the biggest failure of it of all. He, he, he took his courage, but he didn't know where he was taking it. He had no idea what he would walk into. And he was unprepared for, for anything. And he got blindsided from a place that he never expected. He was put on the spot. You ever been put on the spot? Suddenly, verbally, in a little bit of a tense situation for your faith? Ever been so surprised by either a question or a challenge that you didn't end up saying anything? I have multiple times. <laughs> it's one of the reasons I love Peter. Because sooner or later, I'll find that he was in a situation I end up in. He was unprepared. That was the biggest problem. And his unprepared reaction gets worse because the devil ratchets it up, but also God in his sovereignty ratchets up the opportunity for Peter to make this right. I'll point that out in a minute. So the woman is, for that moment, quieted. Nothing happens. That's kind of instructive. Verse 58. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Mark, I think, tells us, if not Matthew, that after the first challenge, Peter moved away from the fire. Good move. And he went into the darkness of the, port of the entryway. He, he started to distance himself from this. He certainly didn't want this conversation to go forward, and he didn't want to be recognized again. So Peter was in the darkness, kind of in the entryway, and Mark, I believe, tells us that a little while later, somebody else came out and looked at him in the entryway and looked at him with, with, with curiosity, and it was, turned out to be a man. And, and he says, you also are one of them. I think she's right. And Peter denies it again and says, man, I am not. So uh, it's fascinating. This, this escalates. Mark tells us, that a rooster crowed at this point, and, and part of and, and a prophecy of Jesus in another one of the gospels said that a rooster wouldn't just crow after he denied him three times, a rooster would crow twice. And so the first rooster crowed after the second denial. It's interesting. Why was that building there? I don't know. But here's my best guess it was a grace to Peter, it's a warning. Listen, this is the second time you've denied Jesus. Turn from denying him. Find your courage. Don't fail further. The first crow, crowing of the rooster was basically a message from God. Either get brave or get out. See, he was unprepared. He was in over his head. He, he stepped into a position of spiritual challenge that his courage and his capability weren't ready to meet. 
But God warns him here, listen, this is the second time. This is my, I'm just thinking out loud. I, I don't know this, but I'm wondering. Peter had an opportunity to get braver or to simply get out before he failed completely. And like Peter, he did neither one. He's a muddle of a man, isn't he? Somehow, he finds his way back to the fire. He avoids the second person after denying it a second time. And he goes back to the fire. And the false trial continues to go on in one of the the porticos upstairs. And they can perhaps hear the raised voices of the angry accusations from Annas or the other priests that are with him or Caiaphas. They can perhaps hear the measured tones of Jesus. And maybe even Peter can sneak up a glance with his eyes and see Jesus. But it goes on. Verse 59. Quite a bit of time elapses, and after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, insisted, interesting word. It's only found twice in the whole New Testament, and it it's basically how we translate it. It's, it's, it's saying something with total conviction over and over. It's like, we're, we're our, it's our phrase, no, wait a minute, I know what I'm talking about. Apparently a third person had, had spent time now thinking about it and looking at him intensely. And after an interval, about an hour, still another insisted saying, certainly this man, again, he's speaking to the group, this man was with him for he too is a Galilean. Peter had made the mistake of speaking a couple of times. He had to deny Jesus. And when he denied Jesus and said, man, I, I don't know him, his Galilean accent Betrayed him because the, the, the people from Galilee where Peter had, had come from spoke with a more guttural dialect and they handled vowels differently. And it was obvious that he was not from Judea. He wasn't a Jerusalemite. He was from Galilee. And we all knew that his disciples were from Galilee. And so Peter is trapped by his accent. And Peter looks at him and says, man, verse 60, I do not know what you are talking about. He completely blows into full escalated denial. He adds words to it. Mark's version is this, quote, I neither know nor understand what you were talking about. And the Bible knowledge commentary says that, quote, this was a common Jewish legal expression. How about that? He went legal, covering every, every exception. Now, we're familiar with this because we've seen ad nauseum hearings on television in C-SPAN where yet another politician will get up there caught in whatever they did and say, I have not now, nor have I ever had knowledge of this event. It was one of those phrases. Peter just says, I, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And I think in Matthew, it says he, he, he placed a curse on himself and he began to swear. Now, that's not profanity. When a, when a Jew placed a curse on himself, he said, if I'm lying, may God strike me. May God deal with me. I swear to you, if, if I'm lying, let God himself strike me in this moment. I do not know Jesus. What an irony. G G Peter denying the Son of God by invoking the person of God. That's how crashed and burned he was. The collapse was complete. It took a little over an hour 
First he denied being with Jesus, then he denied being a disciple, and now he denies even being a Galilean. He denies even the accent on his lips. He says they've got it all wrong. Well, so much for being willing to go even to death, right? He was unprepared, unready. Even though Jesus had told him it was, this would happen. You remember in our, in our chapter, in chapter 22, back up at verse 31, he had said that Satan wants to sift you all, and Peter, you're going to be the great point of this. He's going to shake and shatter your life so that, so that if possible, he shakes whatever so-called faith you have right out of you, and you will fail. And then you'll deny me three times before a rooster crows. He tried to protect him from being overconfident. He'd, he'd laid all this out in Matthew 26 and in verses 31 to 33. He, he, he talked about the fact that in verse 31 he said, you will all fall away me, from me because of this night. You will, rather, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. There was a two-part promise there. You guys are all going to fall apart. Your faith is going to abandon you, all of you. But I understand that. My Father is sovereign over that. And I will see you gathered again after I'm raised up. I will go before you to Galilee. I'll see you again there. This is going to happen, but it's going to be all right. And even in the middle of that, Peter insisted, but answered him, though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away with you. And Jesus warns him in Matthew uh, 26, Jesus said, truly, I say to you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Well, so Jesus had tried to tell him and he had tried to protect him. In fact, in John Chapter 18, when Jesus is arrested, I mentioned this to you before, he told the arresting officers in John 18, verses 8 and 9, Jesus answered in in the garden back in Gethsemane when they were ready to take him, and he says, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Remember that. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So, Jesus knew they were going to run. He was okay with them going to run. And in fact, and this may seem weird to you and you may disagree with me, I think it was better that they have run because they were not up to this. Some Bible commentators have thought, and I, kind of, I tend to agree with them, that really Peter never should have been there. Although God sovereignly allowed him to be there and the prophecy was placed that he would be there from a human point of view he never should have been he was sitting in enemy, enemy territory totally under underprepared and and he became intimidated because of that there were three attacks three denials why three i'm not sure but i think all hidden in that were opportunities for him to turn and stand and, and there were three opportunities, three attacks that were three opportunities for him to turn and stand at least once, and he didn't do it. So there was a mercy in that, but there's also failure in that. So I look at all of this when we think about 
spiritual conflict, when we think about standing for Jesus, when we think about confronting evil, when we think about putting ourselves in positions where we go to war for Christ, and I would simply say, if you're being led to do that, make sure you're as ready as you can be. Don't bite off more biblical battle than you're ready for. So many of us can be so confident, all of us can, about certain things. And we can, we can say along with Peter, oh, if I was in that situation, I would say this. And oh, if we're in that position, we should do this. And, and there, there's this tremendous rising of spiritual confidence and determination. Well, make sure as ready as your rhetoric calls you to be. Spiritual conflict's not for immature people. It's not for sissies. That's why Peter wrote many years later from this experience, 1 Peter 3.15. He said, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared (laughs) to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Be prepared. Don't take whatever you may be being led into lightly. And don't step into what you're not ready for in prayer. Peter wasn't prayed up, too. I mean, think about that. How often did Jesus say, pray that you may not enter into temptation? For the spirit is willing, but the... That's this story. Well, rushing to close now. The damage is done, but there's something more to come, and it's hard, but it's good. So the renunciation has been made. The wreckage is on the ground. But then there was a second fact of all of this, this failure, and that was the realization of it. That's, as you go back to your passage, that's verses 60 and 61. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he's still speaking that sentence, the rooster crows. The sovereign, perfect, particular timing of God. The rooster crows that second time after the third denial. And Peter hears it. But so does Jesus. Peter hears it, but so does Jesus. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Remember, Jesus was probably standing in a portico above. I have a friend that went to the Holy Land years ago and went to this place that they've kind of unearthed where Jesus was probably tried. And the courtyard is there, and the place where the Roman soldiers played dice as they were waiting for the proceedings And uh, there's a place above it where they believe the trial took place. And my friend, he showed me a picture. He was standing there warming his hands at the place where the fire would have been in the courtyard and had somebody take a picture from where Jesus could have been standing up in the portico. He was from me to, to the third or fourth row back, right where you are right now. He looked. He looked, and he saw Peter, and he gazed into Peter's eyes. 
It wasn't just a glance. Emblepo is the Greek word, and it meant to look attentively, to look directly. Leifel, the commentator, says that in ancient Greek, the word often signified a look of interest and love or concern. I think there was sadness in the eyes of Jesus, but I also believe there were these three things, interest and love and concern. He looked at Peter because he knew what a crisis Peter was in. It was a look that was designed to create conviction. Peter needed that. He was living in denial in that moment. And God will do that with us when we're living in a denial of our sin. He will come with sadness but love and he will look into our lives and press us into what we've done until we taste conviction. And of course in this moment conviction fell. That's another good thing about Peter. It wasn't a short trip for him to admit his sin. I believe in that moment it all collided. And it says, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Oh, he wept deeply. Clio, the Greek word, it meant to weep out loud, to weep with a deep sound. He sobbed bitterly. Picross, the Greek, it meant to be struck sharply in your soul. Oh, he knew it all. So the sad prophecy by Jesus predicting Peter's greatest failure, oh, you'll deny me three times before the cock finally crows. It had come true. And nobody on earth knew it like Peter did in that moment. But that's not the end of the story. (laughs) Because that's not the only prophecy Jesus had made about Peter. Right there in your Bibles, in Luke 22, in this very chapter, we studied it some weeks ago, Jesus made two prophecies about Peter. Yes, he prophesied that Peter would deny him three times and a cock would crow at the last. But he also said, verse 32 of Luke 22, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's the second prophecy. A prophecy of failure and a prophecy of restoration. And they both came true. And that's our final word on this. And it is the word restoration. There was a terrible renunciation and a bitter realization, all followed, however, by a beautiful restoration. You see, God's plan was not shaken by Peter's failure. It actually included it. How do we understand these things in the work of a providential God? I don't know. Peter was responsible. He had opportunity to turn. He didn't. He didn't even really need to be there, but he ended up there. 
He failed dramatically, but it was already included, of course, in that providential plan of God. God's plan wasn't shaken by Peter's failure. It included it and provided for it, and Jesus prophesied that Peter's life would not end there. His faith would not fail there. It would be shaken and drawn down to the depths there, but it would not ultimately fail. Now, Jesus would go on to die hours after that, and Peter ran out to weep. But we do know this, that after Jesus rose, the gospel tells us, all all of the gospels together tell us, that the first person Jesus sought out in a, in a particular unique way after resurrection was Peter. Remember this? In his gospel description of resurrection morning, the angel has a message for the women to take back. He says, he's risen. Go tell his disciples and, don't you remember it? Peter. Peter was singled out on resurrection morning by the angel saying, you go tell the disciples in their fright, in their discouragement, and you make sure you particularly tell Peter. Go to Peter with a special message that the Lord Jesus is risen. (laughs) So he was given special encouragement because God in his great heart knew Peter was in special crisis. Nobody had fallen like he had. And then Luke, Luke 24, I believe, Later in the afternoon of Resurrection Day, when Jesus had made multiple appearances by that point, he had, he had appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they came back and, and, and found the, 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 uh, the 11 disciples in the upper room, and they said, we saw Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and they all say, we know he's already appeared to us, and he appeared to Peter. Somehow the Gospels tell us that on resurrection morning, Jesus made a special stop. He appeared to one individual in particular, and it was who? Peter. Why would he do that? To restore the man's heart. To come where the breaking was the deepest and to show him comfort and restoration. That's how I'm reading my Bible today. Now we also know, and with this we close, that Peter also received a final work of restoration on an early morning some weeks later. Jesus had been risen for some weeks, had appeared to the disciples many times, had taught them about the kingdom of God, prepared them for their great commission ministry. And the disciples were gathered together, at least some of them, in Galilee, and Peter said, I want to go fishing. Remember the story? John 21. You know, we don't have time to turn there, but Peter goes fishing either because he wasn't quite sure yet that he could follow on in this great commission that he was being given or simply because he was just so psychically still shaking that he, he just needed the calmness of fishing. And they go out and they fish and they catch nothing all night. Remember the story? And then they're, they're bobbing in the early morning light and they see a figure on the beach and he's too far out for them to make who he is. But he calls out, children, have you caught anything? And they said, nothing all night. And, and he said, just cast your net on the other side of the boat. Did that sound familiar? And they, they went ahead and cast the net on the other side of the boat and boom, hundreds of fish sovereignly whoosh, sweep in and the, and the net's too big. It's almost tilting the boat and All the disciples are trying to get this net over, and 
Peter knows exactly who that distant figure on the beach is. It's the Lord. And he says, it's the Lord. Throws off his cloak, dives in, swims to shore. You know the story. And they get there. And the Lord Jesus had uh, kindled a fire on the beach. Does that sound a little familiar to you? A blazing charcoal file in the courtyard and a charcoal fire on the beach. I just think that's a beautiful, a beautiful little feature of reminder and restoration. So they're around that fire and they're all eating the fish that Jesus had already supernaturally put on the fire. I love that other feature too. He didn't eat any of the fish they caught. The other guy's reading, and Jesus takes Peter aside. And he points to the other disciples, and he said, So, Peter, do you still think you love me more than these? More than all these other guys? Just like you said so often, that you loved me more than them, and you'd do anything for me. And Peter looks at him and says, Lord, you know I have a heart for you. You know, I have affection for you. He doesn't use the word agape that Jesus was using, unconditional, bold, sacrificial love, because Peter knew he didn't have any left. He knew he was just a frail man with a heart for Jesus. And what did Jesus tell him then? Go feed my lambs. In a moment, he's restored. He's comforted. He's made whole. And he's given back his ministry he didn't have to be a superstar he always thought he did he didn't have to be better than these he just had to be somebody who had a heart for for the Lord and wanted to please him that's all it took Jesus asked him the question twice more I love that three questions three opportunities to say, Lord, you know I have a heart for you. What did those three questions match? The three denials. That's how I'm reading my Bible. And he would look at Peter and he says, you know, I, you're going to live a long life and then somebody's going to stretch your arms out on a cross and lead you to a hard death. That's a lot scarier than some woman sitting at a campfire accusing you of being with Jesus. And Peter basically said, okay, Lord. And he walked, or should I say, began to limp into history. And that's exactly what happened to him. The story ends with spiritual restoration and I think that's the reason for the whole encounter in its ultimate sense. All of it. So how about you? Have you ever greatly failed God? If you've tried to serve him for any length of time, you have. I know I have. But don't let the guilt over that, that truth defeat you further. Don't let it. God was not surprised. 
He actually wrapped his great plan around even that. And he wants to meet you on the beach.